Well, let us uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read the whole chapter. It's all one topic. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 
Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat, or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to read 
so freely such a clear and thorough exposition by the apostle on the resurrection. Our hope, Lord, that uh, when our course is run, we shall be raised from the dead, resurrected to see thee face to face. Our bodies shall be glorified and we shall dwell with thee forever. This is our hope, Lord, indeed, very foundational of our faith. Father, inasmuch as we don't live by bread alone, but by every word of God, feed us now with thy word, that our hearts might be strengthened in faith, that Christ might dwell therein, we might live in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, a, a thorough exposition there by the apostle. Uh, on the one hand, lending itself to many weeks of study and preaching. On the other hand, it's fairly straightforward on its own. Brethren, this is the center of the gospel. Uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We want to look at this and we'll never cover it all. Um, but here it is, and I know we're not uh, a traditional church following the church calendar that the Roman Catholics uh, established you know, centuries ago. But on the other hand, how often do we preach thoroughly about the resurrection? Not even once a year, commonly. Churches that don't, and so it's good for us to take the occasion to uh, a day that for many centuries has been universally declared to all citizens a day to be commemorated where no work is to be done set aside to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead of all people we should be the most enthusiastic about that and never mind chocolates and Easter eggs I'm increasingly uh, alerted to the importance, the centrality of this to the gospel that we preach. And it is as relevant for us today as it was for Paul in his day. You remember, walk with me in your mind, in your memory, through the book of Acts, where the apostles, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaching, right? You have taken by wicked hands of crucified and slain, God has raised him from the dead. Peter preaching to the Jews the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul preaching to the heathen, starting with their um, superstitions, to the unknown God, finding some touchstone, and he preaches the resurrection of the dead. When he's on trial for his life, standing before the kings, he said, why should it be thought a thing impossible with you that God should raise the dead? In... Uh, um, dialogue slash dispute with a Muslim acquaintance, friendly acquaintance. Um, and he wanted to engage and attack the doctrine of the Trinity. And after we'd been at it probably for an hour or two or three, I don't remember, we were together for about five hours. He said it was the best thing that had happened to him all week. Um, to <laughs> I said, but this isn't really the difference between Islam and Christianity. This isn't the issue. Of course it is. No, no, no. 
It has to do with the death of Jesus Christ for sins and his resurrection. That's really the difference between Christianity and Islam. And it kind of derailed him a bit. Um, and, well, like I say, we've been at it nearly five hours by then, so we didn't carry on much longer. But, brethren, this is the fact that is contested. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ and Christians, evangelicals, make much of the um, substitutionary death of Christ. Not scriptural. He's a propitiation for our sins, the just for the unjust. With his stripes we are healed. But there is a, uh, an element that is more encompassing and more universal than that. And John uh, starts his gospel with that in chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That's really the issue. It's not... Uh, people today struggle with it, and they, they uh, accuse God. The justice of God is not just for someone else to suffer for someone else's um, crimes and so on. And really, they're just looking for reasons to argue um, and to object. But that's, that's not the, the primary focus today. Up until about 200 years ago, it would be um, the Enlightenment really tipped the scale in um, Western civilization. But for most of human history, mankind has had a clear concept that the gods were not pleased. God or the gods were not pleased and that they needed something to take away the wrath of God. That was fairly universal. And so, to such people, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross was much more welcome and much better understood. But undergirding even that is the fact that Jesus Christ takes sins away. That's what his death and resurrection did. And this, the secularist who may object to the substitutionary aspect and the justice, you know, how can an innocent person suffer a guilty friend? Jesus Christ will take your sins away. That's the thing. They were all put on him so you haven't got to have them any longer and then he took them away and they're gone. That's the thing. And it's a known thing among psychologists and this is part of this explains part of what goes on in the world only a small part perhaps is that guilt and shame are such destructive forces. And having rejected the one who can take guilt and shame away, they want to say, well, you're not a bad person. You're a sick person. You're not a wicked drunk. You have a disease called alcoholism. It's not your fault. You're not a sinner. You have mental illness. Right? And all of these things. Um, so that people don't have guilt and they don't be ashamed. You've got to love yourself and forgive yourself and all of these things. People go insane with guilt. They can be set free in a moment of time by believing on Jesus who bore their sins. And it's just as relevant in a secular world that can't get the guilt away from people. They drug them. They do all sorts of things. People contort themselves. They, they want to say it's not a sin. Listen, adultery, right? There's this thing now called polyamory. Poly is many. Amore, love, you know, from the Latin. 
So, you know, oh, you, you're monogamous, right? One, mono, one, you just married to one person. I'm polyamorous, I love many people, and so it's not a sin, we're just different, you see. And they excuse adultery. Decades ago, the, the editor of Equinox magazine writing that, you know, um, uh, marriage and divorce every seven years was good for evolution, right? You spread your genes around the place, right? To take away the guilt of wickedness and sin. Because they, in their hearts, like a fountain. But Jesus Christ took sin away. Hallelujah. That's the thing. This is the gospel. People burdened with guilt. People bound with sins they can't stop doing. By being baptized into his death, you're loose from those sins. I don't know where everyone's at. I know most of us, I mean, we all know each other pretty good. But not everybody shares everything, I can tell you. The gospel is not a gospel of suppression. It's a gospel of liberty. I haven't got to stifle anger and suppress it. Christ has made me free. Hallelujah. It's a gospel. Not just the guilt of the sins I've committed, but deliverance from its power. Yeah, that's the gospel. And he did it by his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the thing. Let's look at that, the facts of the gospel. I know there's a lot in here we read, and we're not going to be able to expound it all, but it was an exposition itself. I'll maybe make one comment, although probably uh, the the four people that were distracted by it may have forgotten it by now. This verse 29, baptism for the dead, you know, what's that all about? Uh, Well, it's not what many think. It's not a proxy. It's not, oh, John died before he could be baptized, so who's going to be baptized for him? It's not that, right? We're clear on that? Um, it's, um, it's a figure of speech <laughs> where that was addressing what was common then and has been for centuries. And throughout church history is that somebody who was martyred for Christ was often that martyrdom was the inspiration for someone else to be saved and they would be baptized. In other words, they, I mean, Tertullian even said it, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You saw it during the Anabaptist heritage all through church history. And why would you go and get baptized and believe in Christ knowing you're going to be killed like this person if there's no resurrection? That's, the, that's what he's getting at. What about all those people that come to take the place of those who have been slain for Christ. What are they doing that for if there's no resurrection? That's his argument. It's not a doctrine of, John wasn't baptized, so you're going to be baptized from. That's not a thing at all, although I think there's one denomination that did make it that. So we'll just um, clear that aside. But let's look at this statement by Paul. I declare unto you, brethren, the gospel which I preached unto you, Notice the importance of remembering the Word of God and keeping it in our memory. And that works for all truth, eh, brethren? You ever been blessed by a message? Really believe it, affirm it? Yes, that's right. And forget it? And not end up doing it and living it? Didn't profit. It's like the rain falling on a stone. This is why Peter said, I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. 
right? And so we want to encourage, exhort one another because it's so part of our human frailty. But we need to be those that keep the word of God. And he's saying this on this very fundamental thing. You need to keep it in your memory. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now these are the facts of the resurrection. The first aspect being that it was foretold. And probably most of us would really struggle, if not fall entirely flat, when Paul's referring to the scriptures. Remember, he's writing new scriptures, fresh scriptures, new covenant scriptures. He's referring to what we call the Old Testament. And could you take the Old Testament and teach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Right? We should be able to do that, brethren. And they, they reason together with their fellow Jews from the scriptures. Now the pagans that were worshipping idols didn't really, the scriptures weren't really that relevant for them. Didn't matter what the scriptures proved because they had no scriptures. That would come afterwards. But when talking to people that were Jews, who had an expectation and a desire for a Messiah to come with pomp and glory. It was important to show them, that, look, the scriptures foretold a Messiah that would die, be buried, and then be raised from the dead and be seated at the right hand of God, not on a throne in Jerusalem. It's important to prove that from the scriptures. And the Jews are very clever, clever with the scriptures. Sometimes they take a lot of creative license, but oftentimes they're very insightful and get so much out of what we would pass by. Are you familiar with that proverb that um, I think words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in pictures of silver? How many of you remember that obscure proverb? And one rabbi writing on it said it's, it's, um, it's like the text, right? That from a distance one only sees the pictures of silver, but upon close inspection you see the apples of gold. And uh, they, they are very good at mining and seeing a lot, which is why it was so easy for them to be persuaded on different things. For example, when the Lord said to the Sadducees, um, ye know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, right? Um, and have you not read about the resurrection? Have you not read what God said to you? Um, Speaking in Moses, I forget the wording now, but when he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And they didn't argue. They didn't say, oh, you can't get that out of that passage or whatever. They saw it as Christ spoke it. They recognized the, um, all of the implications and things you could draw to Scripture. In fact, much more so than many Christian people who want to, you can't get that out of this verse and, and all of these kinds of things. Very easy. Um, what was difficult to overcome was the unbelief. It's not that they couldn't see that the text could say that. It's that they rejected it and didn't want it. And that's where the argument came from. All right. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, brethren, according to the scriptures, perhaps the most easy and the most obvious one in the whole Old Testament are you brave, Sean? You want to tell us which passage? 
Uh, well, that, um, that certainly speaks of one aspect. I'm thinking of one that covers all three. We did look at Psalm 16. All right. And everyone knows that. Yeah, see, this is a problem with people going out on a limb. That's why nobody wants to answer the question, right? So, uh, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him. Remember, this is where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself? Of some other man? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing, and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. And he goes on. Brethren, there you have described the suffering life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, specific mention to the grave, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the most famous passage that has them all there. Uh, right? It's clear um, the, the suffering life, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, even his brethren taunted him. Go on up, show yourself openly to the world. They didn't believe on him. The the hymn writer said, Inured to poverty and pain, a suffering life my master led. The son of God, the son of man, he had not where to lay his head. He lived a suffering life. 
Rejection. It's not nice being rejected by the people you love and came for, is it? Continually, over and over. Mm. And then he was, um, the trial was unjust, taken from, from judgment and from prison. In other words, um, justice and fairness was taken from him. He was cut off out of the land of the living. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich. And then, so we've seen there his suffering life, his, um, his uh, unjust condemnation, his death, his burial. Verse 12, therefore, this is the father speaking, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. This is the resurrection of Christ. Because he's done this, all right, this is what Paul wrote. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. Verse 12 speaks of the resurrection. Of course, we looked, I think it was last week, we looked at Psalm 16, uh, which captures uh, the resurrection. His death, um, the burial is implied in the resurrection. Psalm 16, uh, verse 10, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Right? And uh, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's clearly inferred. Um, his soul, well, hell not being torment. We understand that, right? There are several heavens. Um, there's the heaven in the sky, uh, and there's the heaven where, where God dwells. There are, there's a couple of hells. There's a hell that's just the place of the dead, and then there's the hell that is torment. Right? So Christ did not go to burn in hell with the devil. He went to the place of the dead, where all the dead went. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell... Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So that implies burial and a swift resurrection. Uh, <clears throat> and we, we looked at um, Psalm 110, I think, as well already. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. So this is the resurrection of Christ and his intercession, his Melchizedek uh, priesthood. Psalm 68, right? So they would prove these things. They would address these psalms. Um, Psalm 68, verse 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. And elsewhere. Um, this is a death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What about the third day? Right? So that is um, less obvious, perhaps, but it's there. The, and again, the Jews knew the Scriptures, and they understood how to derive a lot of meaning from the Scriptures. Abraham offered Isaac. What did, uh, what did Paul write to the Hebrews about um, Isaac and Abraham? He offered him, accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead. Remember? 
from whence he received him in a figure. So we see that it was a picture of the death and resurrection. And you, you can read the passage in your leisure. It was the third day where Isaac, in a figure, was raised from the dead. Jonah, famous one referred to by the Lord. Ah. Jonah was uh, ejected from the fish the third day. Now, um, for those that are not familiar and have struggled, you know, and you've got a details-oriented mind, the, the Bible is clear on how it uses three days and three nights as the third day. It's, it's clear. And Brother Dave, you're going to talk about Esther. You'll see it in Esther. Esther tells them, you fast for me, right? Three days, three nights. I'm not sure if she says three nights, but three days. And on the third day, I'll go to the king, right? It's, it, you can see it often in Scripture. I don't have them all at my fingertips now. If you want, we can sit down together. But any part of day one, through day two, into any part of day three is considered three days. And they use the term three days and three nights to mean a continuum. And this is consistent throughout the scripture. You don't have to even check the rabbinical literature, although it does say the same thing. You can just read your Bible and get this there. Whenever the Bible talks about three days and three nights, and then the third day, they mean the same thing. Starting at any time on the first day and finishing any time on the third day. That's how the language. They're not two different time frames. They're different ways of saying exactly the same thing. And Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And he was spat out on the third day. In our English minds, we would be saying, well, that's the fourth day. We just need to accustom ourselves to how the Bible speaks. When Jesus began to be 30 years of age, we would call it 29. Once the year begins, that's one year. So... We count them after they're done. So we're actually incorrect, right? So a child that's, well, a child that's um, four and a half years, and we're saying the child's four. The Bible would say the child's five. He's begun the fifth year, the child's five. So like that. And so um, even the passage we read, Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. When does corruption start with a dead body? I think it's 36 hours, right? So part of the first day through the second day into part of the third day. And so that implies a resurrection on the third day. And the rabbis are clever. They would see that. <laughs> um, the Jews are very, very um, studious. People of the book. Jonah, three days and three nights. Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2. And again, this is, this is a passage on the resurrection of humanity, but it can certainly apply to my, uh, Messiah. It's good for us to have this, to know where the scriptures say these things, right? Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Christ, the first fruits, then those that are Christ's at his coming. But there, the third day he will raise us up. It's a reference to resurrection, the third day. These kinds of things would 
enable the apostle to say it's not just the resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures, but that it's the third day. And this would be the Lord Jesus' own words. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. I think that's right. Yes. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I I did, this is the bane of of my personality, I suppose, spending a bit of time on the, you know, the whole controversy, you know, the great fish versus, you know, the whale. And, of course, um, there have been different speculations of what's going on. I was reading some ancient, oh, well, not ancient, but two or three or so centuries old commentators. Adam Clark, you know, it's, it's a great fish and it's not a whale because whales' um, throats are too small and they couldn't swallow a man, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I don't have a problem with that, really. Uh, English, uh, just in use of the language, the word uh, whale was used for um, great fish in that passage in English usage at the time, centuries ago. But I'm good with believing it was a literal whale. And since dear Adam Clark has passed on, they've discovered sperm whales, and their throats are big enough to swallow human beings whole. So... You know, it didn't go down a blowhole. I don't think there's a whale with a blowhole big enough for a person to go down, maybe a newborn, but not a man. Uh, I gather that sperm whales, from what I've read, have four stomachs, like cows, and the first stomach doesn't have acid juices, so there was no necessity that Jonah would have been burned by acid juices. Um, It's the other stomachs that have the acid. But regardless, the Lord prepared a great fish, swallowed Jonah, spat him out or vomited him out. And um, I don't think, I don't mind. You want to believe it's a great fish? The Lord Jesus is quoted as saying, whale, I'm good with that. A whale is a great fish. You've got one of those on the line. You've got a story to tell. And um, certainly very possible, even by what they know today. The thing is, well, he couldn't breathe down there. Well, of course, it's a miracle. The Lord prepared a great fish. It was prepared. There's no whales in the Mediterranean. I know. You don't think God who made the universe can move a whale over there? Like, come on. It's not. Is anything too hard for the Lord? But even just in human terms. How many of you know what a sturgeon is? Not a spurgeon. He was a great English preacher. A sturgeon. A fisherman, no. Sean, what do you Oh, yeah, yeah. A large freshwater fish. I read a little bit about it some years ago. So, anyone know, Brother Dave, anyone know what the average size of a full-grown sturgeon is today? Length? That would be a big one today. They're roughly half the size today they were 100 years ago because of overfishing and so on. One man caught one on his line with a motorboat and the sturgeon pulled him out to sea, right? Through the river, against the motor of the boat, out into the sea. Like, they're pretty big fish. Um, 
Well, see, what they have today, about half the size they had 100 years ago. There used to be legends by old seamen um, centuries ago of giant squids that expert scientists thought were just made up because there's no such thing until they found them. In our lifetime, well, some of you are younger, but they found them and realized, oh, those weren't made up stories. A 150-foot long squid with an eyeball the size of a dinner plate. Right? That's a big squid. Sperm whale can eat those. Um, swallow them down. So, we don't know everything. And it's certainly very, very reasonable to just take the scripture at face value and say, the Lord prepared. He called a great fish. Turns out to be a whale. And there are whales known today that could quite easily swallow a man. Be uncomfortable for him. And how much more if the Lord had prepared, right? This is the thing. Um, you, know, you think of heights. Some are shorter, some are taller. I went to school with a boy. Uh, we weren't close, but I knew his name. George Papadakis. And uh, I think he was the tallest boy in the school. And of course, he was friends with Mario de Freitas, who I think was the shortest boy in the school. It was funny watching them walk hip to shoulder down the hall. George was six foot eleven and a half, and most of it leg. You get all kinds of unusual, and could not God prepare an oversized whale that's big to begin with? Big one today is about 80 feet long, and just give us a supersized one, 160 feet with a bigger. I mean, it's very, very reasonable. So perhaps that's, you know, these are the kinds of things that one gets stuck on details. But this belly of the fish, huge thing, was a picture of the tomb of Jesus Christ. Overlaid in the life of the prophet. And the, um, the Jews would have been easy. Those that did not have a heart set to reject Christ. It would have been easy for them to see these things in the scriptures. Uh, I meant to look up the passage this morning and then I, it escaped my mind. Uh, I hadn't done it beforehand. Rejoice not over me, mine enemy, for when I fall, then shall I arise. And we take that to heart in spiritual warfare, but it alludes to the death and resurrection of Christ. These are the scriptural facts of his resurrection. The scriptures foretold. Let's look at what Paul points out here and look at, um, look at the Gospels afterwards. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we were, Paul talks about the eyewitnesses. Remember what's going on, Right? Um, there's been infiltration in the church. How say some among you that Christ did not rise from the dead? That's the thing. Uh, I'm just trying to put my eye on that again. Verse 12. Now, if Christ, Is that what you said, brother? Verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? I don't know if those were 
just an unbelieving person that was now professing faith in Christ, you know, like an atheist type. Or if it was a Sadducee that was now believing Christ, I don't know. But there were those in their midst saying, there is no resurrection from the dead. We're not going to be resurrected. This is just all about this life. And he says, look, <laughs> um, evil communications corrupt good manners. Now that's a, quite an archaic expression. Um, false ideas destroy how you live. Like that's the meaning. Evil communications. Speech that has evil implications ruins people's lives. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. No point walking the way of the cross because this life is all you've got. Grab as much pleasure as you can because when you're done it's over. And so people leave off to follow Christ in practical ways. Right? That idea has very terrible practical implications. False, uh, false teaching. And Paul is trying to destroy this lie that has infected the church. And one of the things he starts with, so he starts with the facts, the death, resurrection, death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were foretold by Scripture. So he proves it from the Scripture. And then he goes to the facts of eyewitness accounts. Now, we have those eyewitness accounts in the scriptures. And what you face today with people that are critics of the Bible and attack is, well, it's all just made up and so on. And this whole field of Christian apologetics has been developed to answer those questions. All right? By dealing with facts. Now, brethren, I'll say this. God has made it so that there is enough evidence to be believed, but you still need faith. And the reason being, I, I think, primarily, is because faith is the only way your heart can be made pure. It's the only way. I worked with a fellow teacher, a very nice man. He had a few interesting ideas that I didn't really prefer. But a nice man. We enjoyed good uh, friendship, uh, the duration of our time together. But he said, I believe in the psychology of the gun. You put a gun to somebody, you can make him do anything you want. Right? And that would be the effect of proving beyond any possible doubt that this is all true. There's no way to doubt. Then people would be like, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't do this. So people would be obeying because it was proven to them that they're going to go to hell if they don't do it. But once you remove that proof, then they would go back to their own evil hearts. And so there's evidence, reasonable evidence, but you still have to walk by faith. Still have to overcome the devil by faith. And he will go at you, at your mind, work at your mind, in just the invisible thought and spirit realm or through the mouths of other people. But one of the evidences, so Paul tells you, look, um, Christ died for our sins and he was seen by Cephas, then of the twelve, then of over 500 brethren at once, and most of them are still alive. Go on and talk to them. Then James, and of all the apostles, and last of all me, the resurrected Christ. So, last of all Paul. So people, anyway, we won't go there. We don't have time to get into all, so Paul, uh, into all of the implications of this, but Paul is listing eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Well, oh, he just made it, well, okay. Like, this many people didn't get it wrong. And uh, no, 
somebody that had been through what Jesus did didn't just pass out and then kind of revive in the tomb and now get it together and go out. Um, he had sweat great drops of blood. Pilate didn't know that. People could stand for days on the cross. Not stand, but they could survive. And that's why they break their legs. You, you know this, right? It's a torturous thing. So you've, on, on, fact of the, on top of the pain with these spikes going through you, I think sometimes they could even just tie them there. The pain of the, the hanging and that, so on, that adds to it. But it's a whole thing that you're, you're, you're hanging and you can't breathe, right? And so you're going to draw yourself up and that creates other pain. And you're constantly shifting from one pain to the next, trying to seek relief until you lose strength and you suffocate on the cross. Can't breathe and you, you die in agony. But a man that has been through such emotional turmoil that he sweat great drops of blood is soon going to die. With or without the cross. He's not going to live long. And so medically, the idea that oh, he just passed out, they thought he was dead, so they didn't kill him. They just jabbed a spear in him. So yeah, he's gone through great drops of blood. He's been crucified. He's had a spear stuffed in him. And then he just wakes up the next morning. Oh, I feel good. I think I'll just push this stone out and get out of here. Like, it's so absurd. What, uh, and these are some critics. But here's the thing, brethren. These witnesses, all of the apostles, Except for one. But, and he had to go. All of the apostles. How did they die? I don't mean the specific methodology. Did they die peacefully in their old age? They were martyred for Christ. Because. They claimed to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And they could have lived. If they said. Yeah we made it up. Now, people will die for a belief, even if their belief is wrong. But you will not get dozens of people dying for what they know is a hoax. Do you get that? You're not going to end your life for something you know is not true. You're going to spend your whole life not getting rich like a TV evangelist, but getting poor. Not getting popular, but getting beaten. Ultimately tortured to death. And the only reason this is happening to you is because you're going around telling everybody something you know is not true. Like nobody does that, let alone a dozen men. It's a really ridiculous idea. But this is what some will say. Why? Because of unbelief. Right? So the evidence is there. These men who were followers of Christ saw him die and saw him alive afterwards. And it turned them from fearful men to fearless men who could look death in the eye and laugh. Because of the resurrection. They knew Jesus rose from the dead and so they knew they would rise from the dead. That's the thing. Christ is risen. If it's in your heart, you will rise again. We'll take that up in Ephesians. So Paul addresses it from the scriptures. 
He died according to the scriptures. Just read your Bible. It speaks of a suffering Messiah who would die, be raised from the dead. And it's Jesus. And these brethren saw him. And these brethren saw him. I know he doesn't mention Mary Magdalene. The first one to both see and preach the resurrection. I know. And it's not misogyny. Just never mind. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not talking to anyone here, but the, you know, all of these people that just complain about things. Last of all, seen of me. He, so the scriptures foretold it. All of these brethren saw it. Now, when we preached, we preached Christ crucified and raised from the dead. How can anybody say he didn't rise from the dead? And then Paul points out this centrality. This is not something we can differ on, brethren. We can differ on um, what we believe will happen in Revelation, the last days, last things. And Sean told us we're all wrong anyway, right? So it doesn't matter. We can disagree on that. (laughs) But we can't disagree on the resurrection. There's no wiggle room. There's no variation. Christ rose from the dead or your faith is vain. You're in your sins. Well, what's the deal? He died for our sins. And the proof that that death worked is the resurrection. The proof that Jesus is the Savior is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, he's just a man that died. And maybe it worked and maybe it didn't. The proof that Christ Sacrifice was accepted of God and effective for all is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the proof that he'll save you is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And what you and I have to do is believe on him with all our hearts. That's the thing. We're talking about according to the power that works in us, right? The power that raised Christ from the dead. This is it, brethren. The resurrection of Jesus. You've got to believe, not like the devil believes. The devil really believes it. He saw it. But with all of our hearts, Lord, I'm committing everything about my life, my whole soul, my future, everything, my wife, my children, job, my whole life, Lord, into your hands, trusting you for forgiveness, for salvation, for redemption, everything based on the fact You raise Christ from the dead, you're going to raise me from the dead as well. Lord, what will you have me to do? That's the Christian. I have a vision, brethren, I mean, for Christianity, for the kingdom of God, not for a a human-based, you know, really good principle religion, but the kingdom of God. Resurrection, life in people's souls where people that were selfish are filled with the love of God. And peace and joy and righteousness. Where there's no bitterness, no enmity, no animosity, no sniping, no... Do you see it? Where the lion can lie down with the lamb. The guy who used to be a bouncer and a bruiser and the guy who was afraid of his own shadow and they dwell together without any fear. That's the lion kingdom of God (laughs) baptized into his death all this sinful old man finished and Christ raised in every heart 
us a gospel. Oh God, enable us to transmit that gospel. Not just be saved ourselves, but used of God to see others brought into it. Mr. Wesley wrote a hymn, I don't know if it was John or or Charles who was the prolific hymn writer, or John who wrote quite a few himself, but not nearly so many. Jesus, the word of mercy give, and let it swiftly run, and let the priests themselves believe, and put salvation on. Let Christians live as Christians. Let the children of God live like children of God. That's the first step. Well, we're... Over time. We start late and then we run over time, right? We will remember that we did start late. Uh, but now is Christ risen from the dead. So Paul explains it. With not resur- no resurrection, there's no Christianity. It's very clear. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, <laughs> you know, those hymns, some of them really capture it, don't they? Up from the grave he arose. I botched the tune, sorry. But, you know, it just really lifts you, right? Your voice, everything. You want to get on the pew and stand and just do a Tony Wall glory, right? <laughs> um, it just uh, lifts you. They're, they're appropriate. They capture it. Victor over death. Well, we'll take a few minutes. Just a few, I know. I want to look at some one aspect of the resurrection. It's the nature of it. Uh, we, we spoke about the power of it. I want to look at the personality and the, the details of Jesus and how he dealt with his disciples and point out the consistency. And we can look in John and we'll look in John and Luke, just very briefly. Chapter 20 of John. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home, but Mary stood without at the sepulchre, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, 
and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. We won't spend long on the passage because we're out of time, but I do want to look at a couple things. Right, so the first part, you see the disciples, right? So Mary Magdalene, typical, you know, they're there early, the stone's gone. Oh no, they've stolen the Lord. Runs, tells Peter, and he and John come. Um, I deduce from this passage and the one that comes later where Peter by himself drags the whole net in that Peter was a much bigger guy, and that's why John outran him. John's more slender. But, you know, it's not worthy of dispute. And, uh, and also, when John isn't showing off that he outran Peter. John is indicating the priestly influence in his life, that he wouldn't defile himself and go into the place of the dead. Peter, without, right, John was known to the kindred of the high priest. You read his, gospel, his epistle. Some connection. There was some, perhaps, physical reason why he couldn't partake of the priestly ministry, but it's clear that John had a, a priestly connection and influence in his life. And so he didn't go in. Peter went in. When there was no dead body in there, then John went in. Now, these details <laughs> are evidence of authenticity. Uh, the napkin lying by its, um, you know, off to one side and so on, and the, 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 um, is wrapped together in a place by itself, and uh, the linen clothes lying there. What that is evidence of, brethren, is simple order. It's a witness to the fact that the body was not just dragged out of there hastily and stolen. You may have heard, and I've heard it as well, but there is no evidence for it. That, you know, it's like royalty and when he leaves the napkin there, it's kind of to tell the, the servant that he's coming back and that's what Jesus was doing. That's, that's kind of just made up. It's a bit like the um, eye of the needle as a gate into Jerusalem. It's just made up. It's not really got anything to do with the scripture. Uh, there's no substance to it. It just makes a nice story. Now, somebody's found that somewhere and drawn it in here, but it's got nothing to do with what's going on. The Lord was simply, uh, it's a picture of Christ's conduct when he rose from the dead. He was in full control. This is the Christ we've seen in every circumstance. This is the Christ John portrays. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. And they all fell back, went backwards and fell to the ground. Right? Now that wasn't charismatic. They weren't falling over like you know, slain in the spirit. It was military. They were expecting trouble. They went backwards and went down because they're expecting a fight. Um, those are details. And Jesus said, if you seek me, let these go their way. He wasn't perturbed. He wasn't anxious. He was in control. And so he rose from the dead and he folds his napkin and puts it there and the grave clothes there and gets on a robe because he's not, you know, he's going to wear some clothes. And um, either opens it after he gets out or whatever. The stone was rolled away to let everyone see he was gone. The Lord didn't need it to get out. We understand that, right? Uh, and they, they, they went in. Look, brethren. John's preaching to us here. And he saw and believed. What did he believe? He believed that the body had been taken away. Why? Because he was walking by sight. 
He saw that Jesus' body was gone. And he believed what Mary Magdalene had said. They've taken away the Lord. Because he didn't know the scripture of the resurrection. Right? Mm. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And Mary Magdalene standing there weeping. You see someone distraught. Things going off. We've all seen someone like that. They're so distraught they're missing obvious things. Right? And Jesus speaks. Now why did Jesus do it like this? Woman? Whom seekest thou? But again, brethren, this is the same Jesus that um, when Lazarus, remember? Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. And he stayed two or three more days, I forget which. And he says, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Then he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then he goes there and um, they say, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother shall not die, would not have died. And he draws Martha out. Thy brother shall rise again. I know he'll rise again the last day. And then Mary, she comes with the same accusation, you know, just disappointment, just trying to hold it in, but it leaks out. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Let me down, Lord, kind of, you know, emotion. And uh, he could have just walked up. It's all right. Uh, I'm just going to raise him from the dead. Stone, roll out of the way. Lazarus, out. See, I'm the Like, he could have done it that way, right? But the Lord comes in softly, gently, drawing people out. He didn't say, look. Martha, just stop it. I'm going to call him out. Watch this. You've got to be really impressed, right? He's drawing her out. Thy brother shall rise again. What about the man with the devil-possessed boy? He could have just said, this is nonsense. You out. He says to the man, how long has he had this? And he tells him his heartache. If you can do anything, help us. said, if you can believe, everything's possible. He's drawing the man out. Isn't that right? This is the nature of the Lord. This is how he's always been. And so when he's rising from the dead, he's doing this. He's treating them the same. That he's been consistent all through. Drawing them along. Think, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll close. I mean, folks have to go. So on, family gatherings. In the resurrection... As in his life and ministry, we still see the personality of God. You can follow him with, on the road to Emmaus. Two of them walking. Jesus drew near. This is just like Jesus. They didn't recognize him. And said, hey, what are you talking about? What manner of communications are these that you have one with another and are sad? Where have you been? You know, Haven't you heard? What things? And they tell him... You know, and they pour out their, but all's lost. And then this, that we don't know what to do. And then he expounds, fools. This is just like how he was with them in the days of, before the resurrection. Isn't that so? Um, what was it that he disputed among yourselves, by the way? And then like guilty schoolboys. You know, <laughs> Right? He didn't just barge in. 
What think ye, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take tribute? He knows what Peter's been up to. He just draw. This is how the Lord is. And he did it the same with the resurrection. Gently, slowly, gradually. I mean, you could say in a day, but he didn't just come shock him, right? He's the same. And that's what I meant by the manner of his resurrection. It's a miraculous thing. There's no way to kind of water down or tone down the miracle of a resurrection. It's amazing. At his birth, there were hosts of angels singing glory to God. At his resurrection, which was far greater, he just had two angels saying, "Um, who are you looking for? The miracle itself is loud. It didn't need um, thousands of hosts attending it. But the Christ of the resurrection is the same Christ of of his ministry, of his crucifixion. He's the same. His manner is the same. That's why the resurrection um, unfolds and is manifested the way it was. He says, Mary, you know, don't touch me. Don't touch me. It's not going to be the same. I haven't yet ascended. It's not going to be like that. You're not going to sit at my feet anymore and wash them. You're going to have the Holy Ghost inside you. You're going to have to let go of that outward, you know, the Master's with us. It's all good. I just want to sit near. You have to let go of that. It's time for the resurrection. It wasn't like, I haven't ascended yet. My body's still tacky, you know, like wet paint or something. It hasn't set yet. It was not like that at all. It's, don't touch me. You can imagine, she'd seen him crucified. She was just going to lose all decorum. Henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more after the flesh. No more outward. It's the life of the resurrected Jesus in the believer. That's a gospel. Not you or me trying to follow. I don't like that hymn. Trying to walk in the steps of the master. I get it. I get it. But it's not really accurate. Yielding to the resurrected Christ who dwells within is more accurate. Wouldn't you say? It's the life of Christ. Well, no doubt. Better men could have done more justice to the to the subject and the texts. Christ is risen. All is well. All is well. We have a hope beyond the grave. We have a certain confidence. Death shall die. You who have believed on the Lord shall live with him for all eternity. If we suffer... With him, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that strengthens you. That you have no fear. You shall not deny him. He rose from the dead. And your resurrection from the dead is certain. That have believed on him. Brethren, let us live fearing nothing but God. Fearing no man, no suffering, no loss.
Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ that is coming. We shall be raised, we're raised now, seated with him in the heavenlies. And when our physical bodies are died, whether peacefully in our sleep or whether miserably at the hands of wicked men, we shall be raised with him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.